Funding for Still Newtown is made possible in part by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. This episode deals with the effects of traumatic experiences and with both short- and long-term trauma in children. Those who could be affected by this or don't wish to hear it may want to skip to the next episode. Maggie Labanco was in third grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School 10 years ago when 20 of her fellow students, including her next-door neighbor and six educators, died. I think it's important to recognize what trauma is. Uh, A lot of people um, say that, like, you know, eventually it fades. But trauma is something that never fades. Trauma is just something that you grow with. After the tragedy, Newtown, Connecticut looked for ways to heal. This is still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. Abby Clements has been an elementary school teacher for more than 30 years. Ten years ago, she taught second grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School. In the days after the tragedy, she says she and her fellow teachers wondered how classes would continue. I remember sitting at a table with paper and pencil trying to figure out what they were going to do with us. Where were we going to go? Were we going to just be behind some of the other elementary schools? Were they going to split us up? I remember just crunching numbers all the time, not not having any clue where we were going to go. The district decided to send students and teachers back to school about a month after the tragedy, after the winter holidays. But they didn't return to Sandy Hook. The neighboring town of Monroe offered them an empty middle school called Chalk Hill. But there are no real words to describe what it was like to be in that school where kids were missing, Kids were traumatized. Parents were coming to school. Kids were sitting on their laps. Um, We were afraid to let kids go to the bathroom by themselves. We had parents stationed in the corners of the hallways. Um, We would go, like, together (laughs) as a class. I didn't want anybody going anywhere by themselves. To help out with the transition back to school, local officials worked with a team of doctors from Yale University in New Haven, experts in childhood trauma. Trauma specialist Dr. Megan Gosselin was one of them. I think I got the call the night before that, Megan, we'd like to ask you to come to the school tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, um, and so I think, as I remember, I did have a sense of, um, I guess, some anxiety and Also a great sense of responsibility. Um, You know, am I going to be up to this task? Dr. Gosselin and the team worked with some of the children who were most in need. They focused on the first graders who witnessed violence firsthand and their parents. Dr. Gosselin won't speak to many of the details about that group to respect their privacy. So I can speak in generalities about what I saw, which might not surprise folks, which is that it was a really, in general, quite traumatized environment. There was an attempt on the part of the educators who were, you know, extraordinary human beings, um, really trying to to do a lesson um, when I came in to watch. But only a couple of kids were really paying attention to that. Another member of the Yale team that came to help at Sandy Hook was Dr. Stephen Marins, Professor of Psychiatry and co-director of the Yale Center for Traumatic Stress and Recovery. 
One of the key components of the therapy is something called the Child and Family Traumatic Stress Intervention. It's a model that's used in lots of places now to treat trauma. Dr. Marins helped develop it. One of the first things his team did was meet with the parents to find out how they're doing, if they had earlier traumas, and how their child functioned before the shooting and after. We then meet with the child, and we also ask the child, what do you, why do you think you're here, and what do you think trauma means? And we also let kids know that we're not here to get them to tell us the story over and over again. Often that's something that kids are understandably concerned about because just retelling the story over and over again can precipitate the rearousal and the, the cascade effect. And our job is to help them feel in greater control of what they can control, which are the impact of events, not the events themselves. And then child and parents are brought together. It's often the first time that parents and children are talking about what's actually happening. Um, not because parents are dismissive, but because parents can only know so much. And parents and kids can only tell so much. Dr. Marin says it's important to turn down the volume on distress. And there are certain techniques his team uses with children to do that. First, to, to actually give people language that comes close to articulating what they're experiencing without themselves having the words. So using very simple language to actually ask people first to tell us what you're feeling here, you know, pointing to, to one's heart or in one's abdomen to be able to put into words um, some of the details of their yucky experiences or their unspeakable feelings and thoughts. But even within the first few days after the Yale team got to the school, Dr. Megan Goslin says she started to have open conversations with the children. Not going into detail about what the kids had been through, but labeling it, right, naming it. And the kids, what a lot of the kids called it, and, and adults, was the bad day. And so, you know, having an anchor for... You know, the bad day happened, and now there have been a lot of changes in the way our bodies are feeling, the way our emotions are, um, how we're acting and what we think. But we can help you. The adults are here to help you, and we're here to help each other kind of get back in charge of our bodies, of our behaviors, of our emotions, and then, you know, do some group teaching of regulation strategies like focused breathing, or this. Imagine you've got a lemon in each hand, one in your right and one in your left. Hold them tight. Feel the weight. Then squeeze them out. Try to get all that juice out. Pay attention to how the muscles in your body feel so tight. And now I want us, as we're squeezing the lemon juice into the cup so that we're making lemonade, and now I want you to let go of the lemon and no, pay attention to how your body is feeling so much more relaxed. That's the lemon squeeze. There were other strategies. Dr. Goslin says there was no one approach that worked for everyone. It didn't surprise us at all that throughout the school, there were kids that were on the whole range. So kids that were seeming to be doing really very well, and then kids that were really struggling and everything in between. Dr. Goslin spent months in the classroom. She got to know the children and their families. She went on field trips to the zoo. I am picturing 
a child that I did get to know, I was just picturing like this smile on her face as she rode, I think a camel. <laughs> it's funny because I can remember vividly her face and, I, and the animal, it was either a camel, probably not an elephant. She says, thinking back on that moment, it was kind of remarkable to see joy. And I wouldn't do this interview if I didn't believe this and didn't want to send this message, which is that when individuals are provided with the appropriate support, resilience is possible. I have seen kids and families recover from really awful, terrible things, including school shootings like Sandy Hook. That's not the case for everyone. And many people, unfortunately, don't get the supports that they need or can't access it or worry that our systems of care don't have what they need or will harm them. But in addition, I think what you are maybe talking about is that one can simultaneously, right at the same time, be highly traumatized and and struggling with grief and traumatic grief. But that doesn't mean that every single moment of every single day is absent of joy. Abby Clements, the second grade Sandy Hook teacher at the time of the tragedy, tried to go back to some kind of normalcy after classes resumed. But there were moments with her students when it was hard for her to know what to do. Not all of them fully understood and knew at the time what happened. So one person might start wanting to talk about it. And then other kids are like covering their ears and you don't really know how to handle that. So it was very confusing. And I remember at one point literally saying, if you want to talk about this, come over here. Everybody else go over there. Because I I felt awful to say that they can't talk about what just happened to us and to the school. She decided to give her students notebooks. And I was like, You can write whatever you want during writing time. You can write about the holidays and about spring and coming and all these things. Or you can write about what happened to us. But Abby says she's not sure how much the exercise helped. There there were so many challenges at that time. There was an entire world who recognized and were shaken to their core. So the levels of complexities... Like, they're, it's just even hard to explain. So I, I don't think I remember noticing so, so much change in the kids. And honestly, I didn't really even know how, how things were really going for them. We would come into school, do our best to go through a routine. I tried to keep as much as I could. Abby says the hardest time for her was being alone with her thoughts. There was the grief that was overwhelming and difficult to navigate through. And then it would like rear its ugly head when you had more time. And that was particularly true of the summer months. But that was also the time Abby Clements and other teachers prepared for a new school year and a new class of students. So... We anticipated the enormity of the following year, the second grade teachers having the first, first grade survivors whose friends were killed that day. And we knew it would be 
incredibly challenging. It's like you were learning where everyone was, who were their best friends, who did they know who were killed, where they were. And it was so heavy. Abby says some of her new second graders who experienced the most trauma were not always available for learning. They would literally fall asleep on my shoulder. And it was probably because the aftermath is like had settled in a little bit more and talk of kids not being able to sleep in their own beds. Kids who were not able to be alone for five minutes. Or when they did sleep in their own bed, they were like really proud of it that they were able to do that again. When we return after a short break, how an unconventional center served the community and two Sandy Hook survivors reflect on their years of therapy. This is still Newtown. Soon after the country's shutdown in March of 2020, Texas Public Radio launched a podcast hosted by health reporter Bonnie Petrie called Petri Dish. So today, what I want to do is kind of introduce you to this virus because for me, information is comforting. Maybe that's true for you too. COVID was the focus then, but now Bonnie covers must-hear stories, like how Texas is looking at mental health access since the shooting at Robb Elementary School earlier this year. So, I mean, it's something that needs to be addressed in rural communities, not just in Texas, but in other states, too, have been left behind. Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio can be found wherever you get your podcasts. This is Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. Beth Hagerty's three daughters, triplets, were in second grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14th, 2012. Beth was at the school, too. She was there for a meeting with Principal Don Hawksprung, who died in the tragedy. Beth remembers what it was like when her children went back to school. We kind of just were on autopilot, right? And then after the holidays, it was, okay, well, you know, we got to get ready. We got to go to this new school and explain that... Um, you know, we're going to try to get things, quote unquote, back to normal. And January was dark and dismal and kind of sad after the holidays. And then in February, one of my daughter's teachers came to me and said, Miss Segerty, we need to get some help. The teacher told Beth that all her daughter did was stare at the classroom door. Beth says she called mental health professionals. And even though there was an outpouring of help after the shooting, she still had trouble. Everybody was full. No one could see my daughter who was staring at the classroom door. So when I finally found somebody, she had seen many people in my daughter's classroom, and she said she would agree to see her only if I agreed to get help too, because she said, I can fix your daughter, but if you don't fix yourself, you know, she's going to get messed up again, something like that. But um, so I agreed. Um, So my daughter was in one room receiving therapy, and I was in the other room. Beth heard about a new therapy option opening in Newtown called the Resiliency Center. It offered alternative therapies. She showed up with her three daughters on the day the center opened, in the fall of 2013. You could tell right away that these people were in, in the right place. I mean, you could t- tell that they, uh, they cared. The Resiliency Center had help from the 9-11-related nonprofit Tuesday's Children, 
The center's mission was to serve the children and adults most affected by the shooting. Stephanie Chinqua runs the Resiliency Center. I think back 10 years ago, this was not a common event. So we weren't as prepared as we could be today. However, I do think leadership in the town as a whole and the mental health community really came together and supported the community the best they can. We had an advantage that it's a small community. Everyone lives in close proximity. The walls of the center are covered in colorful artwork. There are toys and musical instruments everywhere. And there's a quote above the front door. We get traumatized alone, but we heal together. You come in and you usually were greeted by a little Shih Tzu, Lhasa Apsa Mix, Sammy, who came to work with me every day. If you were in art therapy, you could be creating a picture of anything related to what your topic was that day. So it could have been, you know, draw a picture of your family. If you lost a loved one, it could have been, let's make a memory box. In play therapy, kids can reenact what's going on with all the toys in the playroom, which was filled with arts and crafts for the kids. And then in music therapy, they can either help create and write a song or they could pick one of their favorite songs and break it down and process that with the therapist. Stephanie says she's seen a lot of progress as kids have grown up and gotten older and headed off to college in some cases. But it's not always smooth. We all need to come back for checkups every once in a while. So, you know, when something like a Uvalde happens that was so similar and mirrored Sandy Hook so closely, obviously we needed to, some people had to come back in that we hadn't seen in a few years, just touch base. Stephanie says the center's job is to be able to support a person in the specific way they need it. Whether that's, you know, a lot of people take up meditation, learning on what do I do when my anxiety starts to flare up. So when there is a shooting or when there is 4th of July and fireworks are going off, which is a huge activator for so many, how do we not become paralyzed and recognize that, okay, this is what's going on, this is what I'm feeling, and how can I get through this? Stephanie says the Resiliency Center was never intended to be around forever. The first graders from Sandy Hook will be old enough to graduate high school in a year and a half. She says then it'll be time to think about winding down. So it makes me sad because we still have work to do. That's Beth Hagerty, the mom of triplets who showed up the day the center opened. She works there now. Her title is Client Relations and Administrative Support. She's the one who answers the phone if you call the center. I still get phone calls every day. Not Maybe not every day, but a lot of, of people that are suffering. Um, maybe those people that didn't get help in, in the beginning. Like, who decides that 10 years is the magic number, right? So if, if there were six and seven and eight when it happened, in 10 years, they're going to be semi-adults. They should be able to handle this, right? I'm sad because I feel like we have something really good to offer, and I feel like we've done great work. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying we. I'm not the therapist. I'm just, I'm just the mom that answers the phone. But, um, you know, I, I don't think this is going away. Maggie LaBanca, whom you heard at the beginning of this episode, was in third grade at the time of the tragedy. She says she's gone through multiple therapists, including some at the Resiliency Center. She says it's the same for a lot of her friends. Everyone tried to get their kids to talk to someone. Um, 
I had lost my best friend. Daniel Barden, her neighbor who was in first grade. And so I think it was kind of first treated as, what do you remember of Daniel? And I I made a scrapbook of pictures of the two of us, and we just talked about that. But we didn't really talk about how I was dealing with it for a while. I don't know if I'm, like, officially diagnosed with PTSD. That's Maggie's friend Camille Paradis, who was also in third grade at Sandy Hook. We talked before she went off to college this year. But I was told I have PTSD by a therapist. We would do little, like I remember this one activity we did where we wrote a little book. We like designed a little book um, of the events of the day. And then we like went through it. And, you know, obviously ended up, it, uh, ended in us all crying. But that was something to help us, I think, like remember and conceptualize that something actually happened and like it was bad and as much as a third grader can manage. But it's, like, I work with third graders now. It's hard to talk to them about anything. One of them told me a riddle today. It was three years long. I don't know how I was supposed to solve it, so I can't imagine how trying to talk to a child about a very, very traumatic thing that they're currently blocking out. But I am very grateful for the access that we had to anything like that. Um, Art therapy worked well for me for a while, but I know that that type of therapy did not work well for other people around me, so I can't really recommend it or not recommend it because it's so personal. You know, I'm never going to see Daniel again. I'm Maybe I'll be able to go outside and see fireworks on the 4th of July again, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch them and not be reminded of flashing lights and running out of my classroom. And it's something that you do think about every day. It's something that sticks with you all the time. And I think it's important to recognize that there are so many people across this country who live with that every day. There are so many people who have lost so many people. Camille Paradis. If I have kids, like, what do I say to them when I'm like, mommy's just really sad right now. (laughs) Mommy has a lot of mental problems now, so leave her alone. And and then also like sending, if I ever have kids, like sending them to school because I I don't know how I'm gonna feel. You know, even working in schools, like even then, sometimes I get very, very anxious about the kids and I look at them and I see myself. So I am a little bit scared about, you know, 30, 40 years, even like 50 years. Like 50 is such a big number. How does, like I, you don't really conceptualize like the future in connection to it until you think about it for a second and then it consumes you for a while. Camille Paradis and Maggie Labanca. They're college freshmen now. You can hear more from Camille and Maggie and about their efforts to help end gun violence in an earlier episode of Still Newtown. On the next Still Newtown, a Sandy Hook mother honors her son by convincing schools to adopt a program based on love. I wanted to keep our kids safe. I knew what happened at Sandy Hook was 100% preventable. I knew the way that we are going about it doesn't work. Still Newtown is sound designed by John Pino. Our fact checkers are Janet Curtis, Margaret Osborne, Melanie Formosa, and Mallory Lawrence. Our editor is Cindy Carpian. Our assistant producer is Sabrina Garone. Our interns, Paul Keegan, Megan Briggs, Isabella Giardina, and Hilary Jean-Bart. The executive editors are Terry Sheridan and J.D. Allen. 
And our media partner on Still Newtown is the Newtown Bee. I'm Davis Donovan.